We are reading from chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word, and you may be seated. Thanks, Scott. Well, if you are a guest here today, uh, you came on a really great day. I just have to tell you, what a charged topic. But before we get there, I just I want to just make a, a couple of observations, if I may. Um, again, if if you are a guest, my name is Steve Glaw. I'm the lead pastor here. One, I am grateful for those who uh, follow in the uh, pattern of Jesus by giving their lives um, so that we can have the freedom to worship as we are today. Um, both of both Kathy's, parents, Kathy's dad, my dad served in the military. I have a son-in-law who served in the military and I'm grateful for the sacrifice they give. And so uh, one of the things that if you don't do, and this is where I'm leading into this, if you, if you don't spend time with your children or grandchildren or those around you on Memorial Day considering uh, the cost that was paid, um, let me encourage you to do that. Um, my wife, who is a school teacher, was greatly surprised that many of her students, their families do this, and she found it very just kind of refreshing. So I just want to encourage you to take, take a few moments. It doesn't have to be long, uh, but it does need to be intentional, and that's one thing I want to know. The other one is that, you know, even as I listen to the giving section, which we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't be a church without it, right? Come on. Uh, I am grateful. I am grateful for the giving. I just, you just need to know that. The faithful giving allows us to continue to do ministry, and especially as we emerge out of the pandemic, I think that we really have an opportunity as a family, as a church body, um, to put some traction underneath what has been spinning um, and to move forward with really some great kingdom work in our community, uh, in our country, and around the world as we're involved. So I thank you for that. Well, um, again, we are in Matthew chapter 5. If you're not there, go ahead and get there. We'll be tackling uh, the subject matter in a second. But for, uh, for a few of us, let's do a little review if we can. Uh, we have been tackling Matthew's biography of Jesus, often referred to as the gospel which uh, you need to kind of put that equal sign in there. Uh, gospel equals, equals good news equals Jesus. That's ultimately what we talk about around here. That's, that's our focus. At Jesus' birth, the angels declared it, right, that he was good news. Nothing else. That Jesus himself, the embodiment of God on earth, incarnate and Emmanuel, God with us, was good news. 
And uh, we just are uh, so grateful for this good news. John, uh, John and the prophets, prophets before him, but John uh, proclaimed him coming in, the, uh, coming in through the desert, right, as pro, uh, proclaimed. Um, and we see that in chapter 4. And Jesus comes onto the scene. He's baptized. And again, this is a reminder for a few of us. He quickly shares and shows the kingdom. This is essential to what we're, we're talking about and what we're wrestling through, uh, not just in the Sermon on the Mount, which we're, we're in, but really the whole text, the whole biography of Jesus is this idea and concept that is perpetuated by him, rightly so, of a, a, a reality yet to be to be experienced by many. But as he does, as he brings it, as he shares it and shows it, he gives them a taste. We talked about it a few weeks ago. So if you really want to get into this text, spend a, a few moments in Matthew 5 through 7 over and over and over again. If you did, I would encourage you to do more than this in your, your daily life but with Jesus. But if you just spent your time and your days just reading those, those chapters, Man, you, you come out at the other end, a changed individual, a changed person. It is incredible. Well, Jesus and his kingdom is about being formed into his likeness, and that's what you would experience if you read them over and over, that, just that section over and over again. It's not just a test to pass for behavior, right? But to be transformed where people are kind and loving from the motivation of their heart through their lives. Uh, not just when people are looking, but when people aren't looking is really, the, really what Jesus is talking about. He's, he wants us to be uh, the light in the darkness of the world in which we live. So last week, Jesus' teaching helped us uncover that our anger can lead to murder in a progressive layering. We go, really? I mean, just anger? Calling somebody a fool can be the trip or the trigger uh, to that progression. I don't know about you, but I, uh, I'm, I watch the news probably a little bit too much. And I don't think that you can pull up the news without seeing the reality of what Jesus was talking about. That somebody who, uh, somebody who was seen, even the, the uh, massacre in San Jose, the progression, if you read any of those articles, it's just, it's heart-wrenching. It, it's just... It's just heart-wrenching because what Jesus says is so true. You know, the layering of what uh, witnesses of this guy uh, talk about, it's crazy. And yet we, if we're not careful, dismiss what Jesus is saying. And so he wants us to deal with anger at a level that we think is really dismissible. But it actually is not. It actually is not because while many of us may not lead into uh, murder or domestic violence or some, some nature of something like that, and I pray not, uh, we do have this ability to kind of create our own living hell. When we live in this idea of anger and just kind of consuming us, we have this, this, this ability to create the hell, and Jesus is so loving. He's so kind. He says, no, 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 that's not the way I, I, I created you. That's, you're not even wired that way. There are people, I'm a little off script, <laughs> if you can't tell, but there are people who study the brain uh, that tell us that it, it takes 
it, it takes so much effort to get the negative out of our head, the bad out of our head, but if we live in the good, that's the way we are wired. We're wired for the good. Um, it's a great uh, Christian neuro, brain neuroscientist that talks about this, and other science backs this up. It's just incredible. I just I want to lean into that because it leads into really uh, a little bit of what we're talking today, talking about today. While you may not think so, it does. As we dive into the topic today, please keep in mind that those who have gathered to Jesus around him, those disciples we would say that have followed him up in the mountainside, right? are interested in being shaped by the kingdom he showed them. This is so, so crucial for us to understand. Even as followers of Jesus, we need to understand this, that we may think that the world should fit into our framework, but Jesus is really, he's a gentleman. He invites people to live into the kingdom. He doesn't force the kingdom on them. And as followers of Jesus, we may be tempted to force our kingdom on other people, think, believing that they could, can and will and should live into that moral framework, that kingdom framework. So even as we walk into this, we must keep this in mind. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, he is speaking directly to you. If any of this were to be of interest to you because you realize the progression of destruction and dehumanization that we're going to talk about, then you're and it resonates with you. Jesus invites you into his kingdom. He invites you with a loving embrace. The same that a soldier goes off to war may not come back. He knew what he was walking into. And so he invites you that. It's also important for us to understand this as followers of Jesus because we are called to be salt and light of the world. Again, I'm referencing back into, this, into the passage of Scripture that we've been reading. He calls us to be salt and light in the world. And if we don't follow his kingdom constraints or conformity, if we don't walk into understanding the depth of it, uh, we're not going to be the salt and light that he calls us to be in the world. That transforming love uh, that allows us to live in goodness. Again, another word for righteousness, a, a more simpler word, that goodness he calls us into. So, Matthew chapter 5. And you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, we've talked about this last few weeks, actually last three weeks, kind of even leading into this. When Jesus or any rabbi would lead into this, when they say, you have heard it said, they are starting to kind of reframe those disciples around them in a new framework of thought. But when he refers to that, he's referring to uh, the Ten Commandments, right? where it, it speaks that, you know, you shouldn't commit adultery. It's in the top ten. He's quoting from the Torah, the law, and more specifically, as I said, the Ten Commandments. He goes on, But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, if you remember back a few weeks ago when we were talking about the Beatitudes, Jesus said the pure in heart will What? You remember? Yeah, the pure in heart will inherit, right? They'll, they'll gain the kingdom, right? And so the heart is the heart of the matter here. We're reminded that not only that, but that he came not only, not only to uh, speak 
uh, about what he's changing, but we also need to remind ourselves here that he didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. He said, I have come to what? Fulfill them. He, right to the brim, exceeding what your expectation is, I came to do just that. So his teaching, his, his pro, you know, it's propped up, if you will, by his own words, but it stands the test of time, may I tell you. By his own words, that he will fulfill what he has said. Jesus doesn't want his kingdom people to be line finders. I don't know if you grew up this way or it's just those of us who grew up in the church but there was this kind of ideas okay what what will keep me in the keep me in god's graces what will keep me in uh god's kingdom what will make me good well that i don't sit you know okay well i'm close but i'm not quite sinning right and jesus doesn't want that he desires us to live in this full transformed way not just to get by but to thrive to be a part of it. Jesus desires that we're fully developed from the heart, formed from the roots to the whole body of who we are. And that's why he goes straight for the heart. Jesus simply steps into this topic of adultery without clarity of his ideals of marriage and divorce. He gets to them in chapter 19 in Matthew. We're not going to go there today, but we'll get there eventually. But his ideals about marriage and sexuality are all birthed out of Genesis 1 and 2. We just have to take ourselves back there. And you know how I love just the, the format that, that these are, there's these incredible hyperlinks that Jesus and others take back to Genesis 1 and 2 and are formed out of that. And he says that we're, he knows this and he kind of speaks into this, that we're made in the image of God, which is good and beautiful and right. But then there's, uh, there's this powerful thing that happens within marriage that's beautiful, right, and binding, that male and female make a covenant relationship with one another. And it's a beautiful and binding thing that, this covenant relationship is this commingling of a heart and mind and soul that, that is combined, and it's a vessel of love, and it's a, a vessel that which life comes from it. And not just the birth of children, but yes, that's true too. It's, it's this idea where life is birthed, and it's kind of an image of who he is and how the Trinity works. And yeah, it is there to create families and communities, but it's this place of life and health, not destruction and death and dehumanization and destroying. The marriage union is so sacred and so beautiful that anyone who would threaten to distort it would be at at the peril of destroying the very human image that God has made in his image. He doesn't want anything to fracture it, so he speaks clearly and he speaks succinctly to this. I wish I could, as succinctly as he did, the depth that he did. I mean, you know, you look at Jesus and you go, man, you, you, you can't plumb the depths of what he has said here. So he states, he states clearly, though, do not commit adultery. Do not end up in bed with anyone who is not your covenant partner That is a distortion of what it means to be human and be bound into this covenant relationship. That's what he's speaking to. 
See, Jesus desires, again, for the heart to be formed because it takes a heart of formation, not behavior modification that, that keeps us from the less than living life. It, it really is more than that. So how does this happen? How, how does one end up in bed with somebody who is not their covenant marriage partner? Most people do not wake up with this on their list, right? I mean... I don't know two of my friends who have slipped into this, have, have woke up, went, oh, this is what I'm going to do today. Maybe there's a few, but not too many. But it's a slow slope, and it swirls quickly as it gets to the end, doesn't it? Let's take a look at verse 28 a little bit closer. The English word can both mean look, look or stare. He, he, Jesus is saying, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully. Notice what it says here in these, in these verses. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in her heart. This is what we read earlier, or what I read earlier. In LNLT it says this, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And the ESV says this, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, a little bit closer to what we need to understand, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I like what Tim Mackey has kind of his own swing on this because I think it speaks to really what this look or this, uh, this idea that Jesus is telling and saying. It says this, when we lustfully look, we are looking in order to fuel sexual desire. That's the look. That's the look. It's not just this one look, it's this look that watches. It's this look that, that puts it in a file in your mind, in your heart. And he says, Jesus is saying, this is a choice. This is a choice. If you're a woman, and someone has looked at you this way, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you're a man and someone has looked at you this way, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Jesus is saying that, is saying that this action leads someone to commit adultery or uh, of something deeper. He's saying that there's this indication of the stare to feed this internal, well, this internal thing that creates a video in your head. But it's, it's deep. It's a deeper issue of, of committing adultery more than just the act itself, but it's a committing adultery of the heart is what he's saying. There's something deeper happen. While we may be caught in an awkward stare and get embarrassed from time to time, yep, it happens. Yet what we create in our minds, no one really knows. And this is what Jesus is speaking to. This is what Jesus is getting at. Because truly it is a private thing, actually, right? I mean, we could do this all day long until it slides into a direction that we would never think that comes out and, and has an has a external hurt, if you will. Yet what we do with it in our minds and heart, Jesus is saying that that is a choice. That is a choice. We have a choice to let something take root in us, and we have the opportunity to fuel it. Martin Luther says this, and many of us may have seen this through the years. Definitely came up in my research when I was doing this. He says this, we should not make the bolstering of Jesus' teaching too taut here. 
As if anyone who is merely tempted to look at another with lust is eternally damned. I cannot keep a bird from flying over my head, but I can certainly keep it from making a nest in my hair or from biting off my nose. He's saying you have a choice. You have a choice. I mean, this is an incredibly high bar, isn't it? It seems like in our culture. I mean, Jesus is setting a really high bar. And again, I come back to this idea that it's a private thing. It really kind of exists only in your head, in large part. So why is Jesus just taking them to task on this uh, this thing that seems to be merely private? Why is he really going after this thing that may not ever be seen? Because Jesus believes it's a serious thing. So serious as we heard and we have read before many of us, he commends self-mutilation, or so it seems. We'll get to that. So why is this thing of sex and sexual desire such a big deal to Jesus? Why does Jesus select this issue for his kingdom dwellers to kind of recreate in this moment. What does it push for? Why? Why is it such a big deal for Jesus? I think it's this. It's Jesus' vision of sex in the body, which is formed out of and is taken from the Bible, which, again, back to Genesis 1 and 2, we have to go there. We find there a male and female. God made them in the image of himself. He saw their male and female bodies before him, and he stated it all good. Our bodies in their gendered states, he said, is good, and sex with it. He says it's good. In fact, if we, if we to take a journey through the library, of, which is in the Bible, we'll find that there is a whole book on the on the, just simply on sexual desire in and of itself within the covenanted relationship. And we know what that, that book's name is, Song of Song, or some of us have learned the Song of Solomon. Maybe not so much Solomon there, but that's to be debated. What needs to be noticed, though, is that inside the Bible, God has divinely put this, this sexual desire inside of it. Right? He's put it there for us to, to, to not run away from. He's, he's not approved by any stretch of the imagination. But he wants this, this, this power, this sexual desire, this drive that he has given us, put in its appropriate place. Uh, let's take a look at this passage from the Song of Songs. Uh, Song of Songs 8, verses 6 to 7 says this, For love is as strong as death. Think about that. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Simply this. The writer of Song of Songs captures what God has placed here, rightly so. Sexual passion and desire is good, but it is a power. It is a power, 
And that's exactly what it is. Check out the metaphor that is used in this passage of Scripture. For love, passion, and desire, it's fire. It's fire. So even the use of the term fire begins to get it really at the image, right? Because fire is not bad or good. It's appropriate. So if you have a fireplace or you've had a fire pit, you know that putting fire inside that fire pit and using it to roast hot dogs or have s'mores or even to get warmth is a great thing. But fire uncontained creates destruction and damage. By the way, if you didn't know what that picture was, that's a picture of uh, my family's business burning to the ground the second time. Yeah. I can tell you what plastic smells like in a heartbeat, burning. It's nasty. In, when fire is contained in its proper place, it's a great thing. But when it escapes that environment in which it was intended to be contained and intended to be used, it's bad. Anybody have a hot meal last night? Yeah, we're all grateful for fire being contained or the heat being contained so that you can have uh, a meal. And the power of sexual desire and passion within the environment of the covenant relationship where the mind, body, and heart bring, bring about new life and beauty, it is a good and grand thing. We have to grant this, though, that it is a complex power that God has granted to us he granted and given to us that is about to bring, it is, it is given to us to bring about good and wholesome and whole things, life and beauty. But when the welding of the heart and mind and body to one another choose to break that weld, it is the deepest scarring of any in human form, in humankind. There is deep regret and there's wounding that occurs and stays with people. It is incredible when you talk to people who have been hurt through divorce, through adultery, through infidelity. It's painful to hear. It's painful to endure. Someone shared with me last week how they were able to, to be the light in this dark world. Uh, this female follower of Jesus simply asked another young lady whom she did not know how she was, and she responded that she was not good. This, uh, this female YFMer uh, stepped away and stepped back and noticed that there was a tear that was beginning to form in this young lady's eye. And she leaned in and listened more. This young lady went on to share much to this, uh, the female follower that the woman shared that she had recently had a miscarriage of her baby and not only was that the issue, but that she was in an abusive situation. Now I can say that this individual came under this young lady's pain and prayed for her, just flabbergasted as many of us would be, just in this passing occurrence of hearing this kind of pain, but came under and prayed for this person. Destruction and dehumanization happen all around, outside of that, that environment that God has intended for it to be contained in, the covenant relationship of one to another. 
man to a woman. Friends, sexual desire is, desire is a power contained, supposed to be contained within this covenant marriage union. Scarring is not only limited to the breaking of the covenant, but also in making bad sexual decisions. And we've seen it. Some of us have endured it in this room. Jesus' teaching in the Bible is not a prudish view by any stretch of the imagination, as I said before. In fact, Jesus and the Bible teach the highest view of the body and sexual desire and passion, I think, in the world. The culture around us is teaching that sexual desire in the body is as close to, is, is, is the lowest level or one of the lower levels that I've, we've seen. That you can be animalistic in your behavior and it's just simply okay. We're told overtly and subtly that the body is simply just pieces and parts. So do whatever feels good to you at the moment. So I argue, I bring before you that Jesus holds us to the highest form and view of sexuality that the world desperately needs, hearts are breaking for. Why is, again, why is Jesus so Hepon really kind of reframing his dwellers in the kingdom around this idea. I believe it's this. It's the vision of life and love. It shouldn't be life, it, not life. It should be life and love in the kingdom. Sorry about that. Not life and life. Here we say it's kind of our byline, our slogan, live out love. We don't mean that just willy-nilly. We mean it anchored in Jesus and what he said. And this is where we find it. In Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40, uh, Jesus is asked this question, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So what we see here in just a, a, a quick Understanding at a quick glance is that we are to, to love the Lord our Lord your God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We're supposed to give him everything. And when we do that, we have this understanding of what love is. We reflect the image of God, and we're made in the image of God, and we understand that people are sacred. Each individual person is sacred image of who God has made. And Jesus calls us to live out this love ethic. He calls us to live it out in to be right relationship with God, but also in right relationship to every single person around us. So when we think about lust, what are we doing? When you think about the idea of just looking and lusting, what are we doing? We're tearing at the very fabric, fabric of this love ethic. That's what we're doing. It's, a, it's an ethic, a way of living, which calls us to honor, respect, and protect, right? 1 Corinthians 13, in love. When we stare and fuel sexual desire, we are doing just the opposite. We're living into the darkness. This is huge because of, because of what it reveals that what we're saying about ourselves and what we believe other people are, around us are for that they're for our pleasure, no matter who they are. It dehumanizes both persons, 
Not just the one staring, not just the one being stared at, but both. Because we're made for better than that. We're made for greater than that. Jesus' teaching on love is to elevate, protect, honor, and respect others. Their well-being should be our utmost desire. What we find is Jesus is intolerant of any behavior that warps and fractures human beings in the way that he designed them and the way that he created them. So sexual desire within the context of the right environment of the covenant of marriage is good, but when it expresses itself outside the forms of Jesus' teaching and the Bible, it is to destruction and dehumanizing. And it's sad. It leads to the last of the reasons why this is, I think, why this is such a big deal to Jesus in verse 28. If you remember back, what gender does Jesus address in verse 28? Men. He addresses men. He's talking to men who are in the group. He's talking to a group of people, though, that many scholars say that weren't just men. He's talking to a group of people that were mixed with women and men. They had all heard about the kingdom, and some had even tasted the healings, the powerful teachings, the manifestation of the kingdom in their presence. And he begins to talk to them about this. Does he think that women have issues with sexual desire too? I believe he does. I don't think that that's what this is saying. I'm, we could be overreaching if we say that. But I believe that he's saying he's speaking to a greater issue. The look, the stare, though, for many men is a private matter. It's still not good. Yet for, for many of us men, it, it is part of the way we are wired or the way we've been taught and thought. And because it leads for many men throughout history and the human race that sexual desire, sexual drive, and the use therein has been a tool for many men for violence, subjugation, and oppression that he desires for us to recalibrate, realign our minds to a healthier and better thinking which is inside the kingdom. Friends, we we have to remind ourselves as we walk through this passage, passages of Scripture, that Jesus is not just just simply giving a teaching, but he's launching a kingdom. He's launching a kingdom, a new humanity. And inside this kingdom, uh, Jesus is challenging the men of this new kingdom in a way that they've not been challenged in any other time, I believe, in history up to that point. That we need to work on this area of our heart, to create a safe place for women. That the kingdom is a safe place for women. Jesus declares it. He wants us to live into it. Unlike the rest of the world around us and the way it has been run, the kingdom, Jesus is saying, is a place for women to be safe, to be valued, cared for, and loved. They need to be safe from being victimized by the look by the stare that leads to, potentially, dehumanizing in destructive ways. This is huge. It's a huge issue for Jesus in his day. It's a huge issue for us today. 
Now, I can imagine that some of us are kind of feeling a little uh, worn, maybe. This is a topic that we're not usually hearing in, on Sunday morning. Maybe even feeling a little bad. And bad's not bad, because that's not the end of the story in Jesus. So what is the next step? What does Jesus want us to do with this? Whether men or women, what does he want us to do with this? He says in verse 29, If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Got it? All right, we're going to close. <laughs> Jesus continually uses shocking hyperbole to get to the seriousness of the topic. And he does it here again. I don't believe Jesus is commending us to gouge out our right eye or cut off our right arm, or even in Proverbs and um, Psalms, we see that the right foot becomes a, a stumbling issue too. But he's getting at the seriousness of this issue, and we can see it just littered all over our landscape in our culture. There's some, something in the world that seems indispensable to you, and I think this is what he's saying, that it's critical to you, it brings you, brings you pleasure, but at the same time is ruining you. It is destroying you. Jesus is saying, get rid of that quickly. Rid yourself of it. Don't think a second about it. It will consume you, and it will bring death on you. Get rid of it. Again, sexual desire is not bad. It's the power to be placed in the proper environment for God for God's design purpose to bring life and bring new life. Yet it's when it's found outside of the God-designed environment, it is an animal that will destroy you and those in your path, your relationships. Let's just talk about the elephant in the room. We have a huge, huge industry with way more financial leverage than they ought to have in our culture. And its sole purpose is to lure men and women into dehumanizing and degradation of humanity the way God has made it. That's not even talking about the men and women who are actively involved in it, who believe that it's simply okay. Right? But it's not. And it's leading them into a path of destruction. Pornography has become a blight on our world. It has trapped men and women in our culture. And quite honestly, maybe even in this room, it has trapped some of us this very day. It's, we're there right now. Let me tell you this. Jesus doesn't hate you. Jesus loves you. His launch of the kingdom is a launch of love. It's a launch of freedom from those things that cause bondage around you and on you. And his desire is to bring rescue to those of you who are desiring to come out of the darkness. I can hear some of you, well, it's just a private matter. It doesn't really matter, does it? I mean... But we have to ask ourselves the question, 
Why does Jesus go right straight for the juggler? He says, do not commit adultery. But then he says, do not look lustfully at a woman or women at a man. I think he knows of just the demon and the power that is contained within it. I mean, I don't know about you, but I have friends who have laid, if you will, can I use this terminology, skeletons just all over their wake. I have one friend whom I love dearly who left a wake of things, and I remember going to him and saying, oh, brother, you, this can change. And he's like, oh, no, I'm too far gone. I'm just going to let it ride. Heartache. Right? I mean, we have to ask ourselves the question, how does one end up in bed with another who is not their covenant partner? How, how does one sexually abuse a child? I think at times our level of naivety is incredibly unbelievable. We have all seen too many, as I mentioned, we have all seen too many friends and family members fall into this demon of misdirected sexual desire. I don't think Jesus intends for us to cut off our body parts, as I said before. But the urgency of action is desperately needed. Misdirected sexual desire is a black hole. And Jesus... We know this, the scriptures speak of it, that our hearts are supposed to be the wellspring of life, abundant life with, without cause of concern. I mean, our consciences are clear, right? And we can live free. I mean, just think, the garden before. I mean, the freedom that they had with God is just wonderfully beautiful. And it's, it's not just in, in maybe our limited view, it is in the whole view he was okay with male and female. He was okay with sexuality. He was, he was okay with that. He gave it. But when it's in the wrong place and used for the wrong purposes, it reaps destruction. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says this, rid yourselves of sexual immorality and sexual sin. Flee from sexual immorality, it says. So what are the direct implications for us if we're taking next steps? Some of us walked in with phones and we use them all the time, but these phones have been uh, a catalyst for our destruction. And we need to, as we've uh, encouraged in other times, we need to actually move and use a stupid phone. Yep, I said it. We need to use a flip phone again. Or turn your settings to gray if you have an iPhone. That supposedly works too, I guess. Some of us need to disconnect our TVs, our computers. We need to go for more walks in the woods with the one we love. Right? I mean, healthy, right things. But this is what I want to tell you as we kind of close out. We close out our time this morning. The community of Jesus is, is that community that desires Jesus' kingdom to come and places our hope and our healing in him. So I'm going to pray and invite you in these moments, uh, in your seat, uh, 
or up here, you're more than welcome because none of us are without sin. To come and pray and receive Jesus' forgiveness because he died on the cross for this very thing so that you could be more who he designed you to be. We'll be singing a, a creed of our faith, uh, sort of, in the next few minutes. In, these, in this creed, it says, I believe in the resurrection, that we will rise again, for I believe in the name of Jesus. While these words will be on your screen, they are words, if, if and as you sing them, are stating that you believe in the power of God to reform you us, and even our world as he designed it, as he desired it, to live in that power, the resurrection power for healing and hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you did not shy away from the very things that destroy us. You were willing to give your life for us on a cross to give us a hope and a help and a healing and a transformation that each one of us desire. Father, would you help us to walk into that hope and help and healing? Jesus, you're the only one who can rearrange the heart. You are the only one who can heal us. And so, Father, we thank you for that. We come to you asking for your healing again in us. Help us to live to the highest highest level of our humanity that you have designed us for, to love one another, to uphold one another, to protect one another, to elevate one another, to consider one another, to be for one another. Friends, if you are here today and you have never accepted Jesus Christ, can I just tell you that what we've been saying and praying is true, that Jesus is the only one who truly can liberate the stronghold of pornography, of misdirected sexual desire, your heart. And so today, maybe your next best step is this, simply to say yes to Jesus and say, Jesus, I, I need your help. I need rescue this morning. If that's the case, simply pray this prayer that you mean from your heart. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy, grace, and love found in and through Jesus. Save me and forgive me from my sins. I give you my life and choose to follow, love, and live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. We are grateful, Father, for your gift. Amen.